the Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash Bones and Bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude <laughs> and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group. Indeed. For yes. all the stuff happens. It's true. Some stuff. Have stuff. Stuff happens and it's fun and drama-free. Yes, we're we're planning to take over a town. An right entire now. town. Mm-hmm. Yep, we've uh, just elected a sheriff. Slash loon owner. <laughs> well. Seems like a good combination. A lot of stuff tends to go down there, so, you know, makes only sense. I feel like if you control the booze, you control the town. That. I feel that that's accurate, especially coming from Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, is the town in Wisconsin? No, it's not. But I'm just saying as a Wisconsinite. <laughs> I mean, I think if you grew up anywhere with winters that freeze hard. Yeah. Yep, yep. You just, you're gonna, there's a lot of beer. Yes. Yes, yes. And hot toddies. Yeah, gotta stay warm. <laughs> Ah, see, I don't like whiskey. <gasps> I love whiskey. Whiskey and I had an incident. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. That will do yep. it. In the same way that red wine and I had an incident. Oh. Although my incident with red wine happened literally the first week of college, and I still haven't recovered. Yeah, that's... I don't know anybody that's ever bounced back from a college mishap with an alcohol. It's usually that alcohol is dead to them. See? Yeah. You join us you join us in the curiosity shop and then you join us on Facebook where you can talk about, you know, cocktails and taking over an entire town. Yep, it's true. We're good like that. We are. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, Morbid Makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid, marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 2, Episode 21. Wow. The First Femmes of Forensics. Ooh. <laughs> I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. My pronouns are she and her. I'm Natalie from Uber Dark Designs, an official true crime creative, and my pronouns are also she and her. All right. How you doing? So what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I like that we both gave <laughs> our cameras the same look. Like, ugh. I don't even know. I just looked down because my arm was burning and I've got... Oh, no. 
a scratch that I didn't put there. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I mean, I assumed that I must have. But, like, stop it, stinging scratch that appears out of nowhere. I have a podcast to record. Right? See? I, I, think I already cleared this apartment once today. We both have Mercury can simmer the fuck down now, please. And then our little intro chatter. And I think it's hilarious that the one thing that Mercury has not, and this is not a challenge, by the way, universe. The one Uh thing that Mercury has not managed to fuck up is your and my communication and connection. (laughs) Again, it's that is asking for trouble. It's not. It's not. I'm. I just want to say for the record, and in advance, I told you so, (laughs) because this happened once. Molly oh, no. said this once oh, on no. Serious Crafts. I have salt near me. Should I throw it? <laughs> oh, no. All I'm saying is it didn't go well that time. Oh, no. No, no, no. I take it back. I take it back. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. Well. Yeah, so Mercury, that's been fun. Yes. Uh, Mercury... And Xanax Haley have been a really exciting combination. <laughs> I love Xanax Haley. Yeah, uh, yesterday apparently Xanax Haley removed someone from the group chat. Oh, wow! <laughs> My coven's group chat. Oh no! You cast someone aside, <sighs> banish <Yeah>. them. <laughs> Nobody was mad. <laughs> Just added them back in, but but I, I. I do not understand interpersonal drama. It doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And apparently, um, Xanax Haley answers to no one. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that, and then I bought a pair of really ugly shoes. <laughs> I can just imagine you going, I do what I want! <laughs> just... I mean, it was at like 3 o'clock in the morning. There's a timestamp okay. on me doing that and there's also a message that i wrote to another friend being like oh shit i think i did that (laughs) that happened you know Uh, my finger slipped then it's that that mercury it's in retrograde (laughs) yeah i I don't imagine that that person is a listener, <laughs> but if you are, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just can't deal with nonsense. It happens. Yeah. And and yeah. ugly shoes can we cancel the ugly shoes? Are we going to keep the shoes? Are they ugly but functional? Like they look really comfortable. That okay? Yep. You know That's those? Uh, uh, I don't even know how you say the brand. Tiva Teva. I think they're Tiva, Tivas. I think. Yeah. Um, they make a like booty style looking shoe that is quilted. Okay. So it looks like a slipper and a 1980s snow boot had a love child. Oh my god! Do you remember moon boots? Oh, I have moon boots. Oh. I have some in my closet right love now. It. Yes, they are the only thing I wear because they're the only thing that I will not pitch a fit about having to put on. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. 
so I, I have a good pair of moon boots. Um, and you can still get them That's for the record. amazing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so... That's fun. They're they're pretty ugly, but they're kids ones and have a bunch of colors involved. So there you go. And you know, sometimes you need. Maybe this is just because I'm old, but sometimes you know, <laughs> function over fashion. Like you know, if it's I, comfy, then nah. I don't tend to wear or use things that aren't comfortable. But I also am stylish so I don't tend to purchase things that aren't although I will say that the pandemic has um, (laughs) really downgraded or upgraded my bra game there you go I can't decide which direction that went I know what direction my boobs went (laughs) but um yeah. But yeah. I definitely stopped wearing anything with an underwire. Yeah. Pandemic World has introduced no. me to the joy of having a house bra. Like, Ooh, I have bras yeah. that I wear at home and then bras that I put on when I'm, like, you know, doing things that require me to feel like I'm not just schlepping around. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I have a collection of, I was going to say outdoor bras. <laughs> um... <laughs> Out of the out of the world bras, yes, uh, bras in the wild. <laughs> um, <laughs> but since I've left my apartment like ten times in the past year and a half, yeah. I just don't think that's they haven't gotten much play. Is all I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with that. <sighs> Good times. I oh, am. So Mercury, along with car things, is always fun. Oh, no. Um, so the joy of our main vehicle needing to be fixed, like when I adulted up, I overeat up and I talked to the guy Ooh. and I found out how much the damage was, which is not nearly as bad as the worst case scenario in my head. So I was like, all right, cool. That's great. We can hang with that. Let's get it fixed. And he was like, okay, well, here's the thing. It's deer season here, so it's going to be three to four weeks. And what he means by deer season Uh is not deer hunting season, Mm -mm. but deer's jumping in front of the vehicle. So there's several vehicles ahead of him, of us, that need, like, major body work done. And most of what needs to be done with our car is body work, too. Um, but this man is... I mean, it happens. Right. Deer just jump in front of cars. And they're, they're, I don't know if they're ballsy or stupid or both. Like, I, it's... I think they get, I think it's not dissimilar. Like, if, if it's dark and someone, say, breaks in, Mm -hmm. having a very bright flashlight is a great weapon because you can shine it directly in their eyes and blind them. And I feel like, and you sort of freeze when that happens. Yeah. And I feel like, well, I mean, I guess deer in the headlights right. is, yeah. I don't know. I mean, they're horny. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. They're doing that. They're doing, they're doing that. 
Well, and the guy is so stinking sweet. So not only was it lower than I feared it would be, that includes the towing. It includes the fact that, like, one of the things that needs to be done, he can't do there. So he's going to tow it down to another place and they're going to do it. And um, so, yeah. So I'm like, okay, uh, it's going to take three to four weeks. That's fine. I mean, like, we could survive without it for three to four weeks. We've got a plan in place. But at the same time, I was like, okay, what's the lesson in this? Because usually there's a lesson in things, and I like to try to find that lesson. So sure. I'm like, I needed to get a backup car for us for my eldest to drive because she now has her driver's license. And, you know, she's been taking the car to school every day because she goes to school, you know, it's fair distance from where we are now. So I was like, all right, so here's what's going to happen. They're going to fix that one, and then we're going to get uh, the backup car, and then when ours is fixed, backup car goes to her. So yeah. I'm like, I got this down. I started looking. I found the perfect car, talked to the guy. We talked about what his preferred payment was because I was like, look, I've done the research, everything. If the car is exactly as it is on paper and in all of these photos, you know, we want it. I do want to have somebody come with me to look at it because I may be a grown-ass adult raising other human beings, but car stuff makes me incredibly ang anxious, and I don't know what I'm looking for. So, sure, I'm bringing somebody with me. And he was like, that's fine. And I was like, does Sunday work? And he's like, yeah, Sunday will work. And I was like, okay, cool. How, what kind of payment do you prefer? Well... Instead of, like, and he had some other person had looked at the vehicle, um, mm -hmm. and he's like, you know, I, uh, I have somebody else coming to look at the vehicle, and I'm like, okay, um, and that person couldn't get the money together until, like, next week, and he was like, you, you know, you talk to me first if you can have the money together. I was like, I have the money, like, now. And he's like, cool. So we made arrangements for Sunday. We just didn't make the time. So Saturday I was like, hey, what time for tomorrow? And he's like, oh, yeah. Uh, so somebody came and got it today. And I was like, uh, but we talked and you said and the things and the fuck you, dude. <laughs> like, so then I had to go like back to the drawing board. And it's so weird to be like, hi, I has cash I want to give to you in my hands. I give you the cash, you give me the thing that you're trying to sell. And to mm. have, like, guys, like, ghost me or just be like, it's just so weird. It's been such a crappy process. So now we have another one lined up that uh, we have to wait on because he couldn't find the title, so he had to get a duplicate from the DMV, and so we're not even looking at it until that's in place because we can't legally purchase it without the title, so. Right. So, yeah, it's really weird to be like, dude, I'm a sure thing. You don't even need to buy me dinner. Like, I have the money. <laughs> Just give me like, I don't understand. So, yeah. But on an upside, I've been meaning to mention, and I always forget every week. Um, obviously, this time I sound human as opposed to our last time. So it's pretty good getting there. But uh, I am in love with... Um, only deaths in the building. Oh, I have, I keep hearing about it, but I haven't seen it. It is delightful. Um, I expect that I would hate it. Is it a comedy? What kind of no. show is it? It's very 
cozy mystery, actually. But not real. Not real. Mm, yeah, I can't do it. Um, but it's, uh, I love seeing Steve Martin act again and Martin Short. The cast is really great. Oh, that's fun. It is. The cast is really great. Selena Gomez is adorable and... She and, is really cute. And the three of them together make the most unlikely but amazing team. Um, it's just, it's, yeah, I really like it a lot. It's It makes me happy. So All right, I'll, I'll give it a try. I'm, we'll see. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a possibility. And it's, and it's funny because they, they end up meeting because of um, a joint interest in a true crime podcast. That seems accurate. And the person that is behind that true crime podcast is Tina Fey. So... <laughs> It's oh that just reminded me of a podcast that I did not put on the list oh. um, for our Patreon Ooh. episode. Um, do you know that Yardley Smith, the voice of Lisa Simpson, has a true crime podcast? I did only because um, I heard it mentioned on another podcast. And I can't well, it's recall. fucking great. Oh, um, I'm sure. It's her and a pair of identical twin detectives. Oh, my gosh. Um, like, and that can she's be engaged to one of them. Oh, okay. And so it's basically Lisa Simpson talking about murder and swearing. Oh. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Anyway, it's yes. so good. It's called Small Town Dicks. Yes. So yes, yes. that's a, a bonus for anyone who uh, maybe isn't in our patreon speaking of patreon yeah now we would like to take a quick break to thank all of our fantastic curiosity shop members over on patreon like it's true amazing love you to death well maybe not to death that's probably not a good way to phrasing that one right now but if you no, love you to <laughs> the town we're founding yes 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 um and if you want to join us, now is the time that we totally give you a, you know, a, a normal, not at all creepy shout out, telling you how much we love and adore you and welcoming us you to the fold. It's true. And then we would tell you, as we tell all of our patrons, you're the best. The best. And we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you. Even during Mercury and retrograde. Well, I mean, honestly, that's probably one of the safer places, <laughs> unless you've got <laughs> like electronic gates or something. Exactly. And if you want in on this fun, not only will you get some really great surprises that we're working on, but you'll also get a huge backlog of Patreon-only episodes, including next week, where we give you all treats and no tricks. All treats. Yes. It's true. It's going to be a fun one. It is. It is. And you get to, to see a different side of us sometimes. You get more cat content sometimes because sometimes the cats just are like, look, we want oh in on this. Oh, my gosh. Um, and, you the know. The cat content 
happened off recording <laughs> today already. And you when... can join and listen. And if it's not for you, you can say goodbye. And that's fine. We still love you. Um, chances are we'll still keep you in the Facebook group, too. I mean, that happens because, yeah. you know. But probably it will be for you if yeah. you like us already. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. it's just us, but extra. Extra. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. So. So, yeah. Let's talk about kick-ass women in forensics. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I'm excited. Um, this is... I'm excited, too, because I don't. I know the name of yours, but I don't know anything I don't know why it rings a bell. You will. You will. Um, okay. So, uh, born in 1833 in upstate New York, there's no way that Kate Warren could have really anticipated where life was going to take her. And while tales of this icon stretch far and wide, little's actually known about Kate's early life. In fact, we don't even know the exact date of her birth. Or really anything about, like, the first 22 years of her life. In the words of the Poisoner's Cabinet, not much is known about her childhood. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also another podcast. Yes. In case anybody needs one. So what we do know is that at the age of 23, Kate was left a widow and needed a way to support herself. Um, thankfully. That's young. Yeah. Um thankfully or non-thankfully however you look at it it was just kate uh no children were left behind um but i still. heard cake <laughs> and now i want cake yes cake's always a good idea so like many women in her position she answered an ad and where was that ad for the pinkerton detective agency Fuck yes, it was. And when she walked into the Chicago office in 1856, she wasn't there for a secretary position. Hell no. <laughs> More than 50 years before the first female police officers, including Mary Owens from Chicago, Lola Baldwin from Portland, and Fanny Bixby from Long Beach, would be sworn into their respective forces and more than 100 years before New Hampshire State Police would appoint our patron St. Francis Glessner Lee, the first okay. female police captain in the U.S., Kate would mm -hmm. end up being the first female Pinkerton detective, which pretty much makes her the first American female detective, period. That's awesome. <clears throat> it really is. Now, I foresee us doing an entire episode on the Pinkertons at some point, and I'm guessing that most of our listeners know who they are. But for brief context, Pinkerton National Detective Agency. It's not just a Weezer album. <laughs> right? Uh, it's a private security guard and detective agency that was established in the U.S. by Scotsman Alan Pinkerton in the 1850s. And it is still around today and was yeah. made famous with the help of our friend Kate. Well, they were the cops before they were cops. Pretty much. So, according to uh, the Pinkerton Company records, Alan's reaction when Kate... I want to look at those. Oh, you can. You can, because I've linked it. Uh, oh, Alan's yeah. reaction when Kate walked in was as follows. He was surprised to learn that Kate was not looking for clerical work, but 
was actually answering an advertisement for detectives he had placed in a Chicago newspaper. Hmm. At the time, such a concept was almost unheard of, Pinkerton said. It is not the custom to employ women detectives. Kate argued her point of view eloquently, pointing out that women could be, quote, most useful in worming out secrets in many places, which would be impossible for a male detective. A woman, I've heard that quote. Mm-hmm. A woman would be able to befriend the wives and girlfriends of suspected criminals and gain their confidence. Men become braggarts when they're around women who encourage them to boast. Kate True. also noted women have an eye for detail and are excellent observers. I mean, you can't really argue with that. And I'm kind of surprised that that hadn't occurred to anyone before. Right. I mean, I mean, it seems really obvious that a female detective would be an asset. Right. Especially when you're trying to, you know, solve murders or, you know, adulterers or whatever. Right. I mean, and we've talked quite a bit about uh badass women being able to navigate men's egos and remain invisible based on men's assumption that women are harmless yeah so i mean it's it's been going on mistaken assumption right another of my favorite stories from alan about kate is from his book which is fabulously named The Spy of the Rebellion being a true history of the spy system of the United States during the late rebellion revealing many secrets of the war hitherto not made public compiled from official reports prepared for President Lincoln General McClellan and the Provost Marshal General by Alan Pinkerton who under the non-diplume of Major E.J. Allen was chief of the United States Secret Service. Hot damn, they did not fuck around. Not at all. The titles back then. And because I love you, it's part of the Gutenberg Project and linked in the show notes for you so you can read the entire freaking thing and it is glorious. So, Alan's initial response to Kate was that employing women in this type of role was not customary, but he would come to realize it was, is that Kate had no interest in what was customary. In fact, working... Well, clearly not. Right? She showed up in Chicago. Um, yeah. Working her way into places she wasn't supposed to be ended up to be one of Kate's greatest strengths. So Shocking. we know she got the job. What exactly is it that endeared her so much to the Pinkerton family and endeared she really was? Now, it didn't take Pinkerton long to put Kate to the test, And she was super eager to prove herself. Also, she was a 23-year-old single woman. So she just freaking threw herself into this. Well, Uh, and she was a widow. So she did not have, like, the specter of being ruined. Right. Uh, Adams Express Company hired Pinkerton on to investigate embezzlements. Kate was sent in undercover and successfully befriended the wife of the prime suspect, Mr. Maroney, an expressman from Montgomery, Alabama, who they suspected stole $50,000 from the company. That's roughly $1,753,634.62 today. That's a Man, lot. Man, if of- you're going to embezzle, I mean, at least be chill. Right? No, there was no chill. No chill. Clearly not. Thanks to Kate, not only did she get the evidence needed to convict Maroney, 
she actually also retrieved $39,515 of the stolen money. Moroni received 10 years in prison, and in 1860, Kate received the honor of heading up the new female detective bureau that Pinkerton set up. But we will get to that. Yes, he did. So, again, whole episode can be done on the female Pinkertons, including Hattie Lewis, who was the second female hired, and the first employee said to be of mixed race that Pinkerton hired. Cool. So, that's another person I want to dive super deep into. Actually, the whole squad. Um would be a phenomenal read. Um, so while this initial case solidified her future with Pinkerton, it was the next big case that solidified Pinkerton's entire future and defined not only Kate's career, but how female detectives were regarded from then on. So in 1861, the president of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad, Samuel H. Felton, had begun to hear rumors of sectionist activity in Maryland that included threats of damage to his railroad. So this led him to hire Pinkerton. Pinkerton went to work placing agents at various points in Maryland to investigate this potential activity, but soon found out that it kind of went like way beyond what Felton had thought Mm -hmm. and also included the president-elect Abraham Lincoln. Oh, (laughs) whoops. Yep. With permission, he continued to investigate and focus in on the possible plot of assassination by some in Baltimore. You may know this as the Baltimore plot. Mm -hmm. Kate was one of five agents sent to investigate Baltimore, believed to be the hotbed of this sectionist activity. And she arrived on February 3rd of 1861. Under the aliases Mrs. Cherry and Mrs. M. Barley, Kate tracked suspicious movement among the Baltimore sectionists. It was in part, though, her undercover work in the guise of a rich Southern lady visiting Baltimore with a thick Southern accent that she infiltrated the sectionist social gatherings in the area, places like the classy Barnum Hotel, posing as a flirting Southern belle and was quick to not only verify that there was a plot to assassinate Lincoln, she developed details of how that assassination was going to occur. Wow. She was pretty much considered like a queen of accents. She could pick up accents, even foreign ones, super quickly and change her appearance quite a bit. I uh, bet she was autistic if it, she um, mirrored accents that well. Possibly. Uh, now, like I said, Pickerton dispatched several agents. But it was Kate specifically that provided the key details of the plot. Lincoln was traveling from his home in Springfield, Illinois, to the Capitol on a train tour that was to stop at major cities along the way. His published program showed the last leg of his journey was from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to Washington, D.C. Now, Oh, I know this story. Mm-hmm. Now, due to the configuration of that railroad system, like all southbound trains were required a transfer to be made in Baltimore. The yeah. northbound station ended at Calvert Street, and the southbound train station started at Camden Street, which I think is actually Camden Station now. Mm-hmm. And the distances between these two stations were about a mile by carriage ride. Kate discovered that just as Mr. Lincoln would be passing through the narrow vestibule of the depot at Calvert Street Station to enter his carriage, a fight was to be staged by outsiders to pull the policeman from the depot, leaving Lincoln entirely unprotected from the mob of sectionists 
that were to surround him at the time. A small steamer had been chartered and was lying in one of the little streams running into the Chesapeake Bay, so the murderers uh, could like immediately flee to Virginia. Like you do, like you do, like they. I mean, like it's a solid plot. I'll give them that. So after they did plan, they did. After seeing pieces of the plot come together, Pinkerton directed Kate to take the 510 evening train to New York City uh, so that on the morning of February 18th, uh, she could be there. Once there, she was set up to um, with a meeting with Norman B. Judd, who was a friend of Pinkerton and also an advisor to Lincoln, where she gave him a letter from Pinkerton outlining the, outlining the known details of the assassination attempt. Now, at first, Lincoln doubted it all, but after having another source confirm it, he agreed that it was plausible, but he refused. All I'm going to say is, mm-hmm. hmm. <laughs> yeah, needed, needed another one, huh? Just, mm-hmm. all right, it's fine. Uh, he refused to cancel his engagements in Harrisburg, though, and he insisted that any change of plan would need to take place after he had fulfilled all his commitments. His agenda included... Which I understand. I get it, too, yeah. His agenda included giving three speeches, raising of the American flag at Independence Hall, and attending a high-profile dinner. It was not until 5.45 at night that there could be any deviation from his schedule. John George Nicolay, Lincoln's private secretary, interrupted the dinner party to excuse the president-elect. Lincoln then changed into a traveling suit with a soft felt cap and carried a shawl on one arm to play the role of an invalid. Pinkerton oh. Pinkerton then had the telefo- telegraph lines interrupted to prevent any knowledge of the deviation of Lincoln's schedule. At the station, Kate poised to play the role of his dis- disguised invalid sister and caretaker, entered mm-hmm. the sleeping car through the rear along with Pinkerton Ward Hill Layman, uh, and a still-disguised Lincoln. She greeted Lincoln loudly as she would have her true brother. From Harrisburg, Abraham Lincoln rode to Philadelphia by a private Pennsylvania railroad train. From Philadelphia, he went to Baltimore by a private Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore train on the night of February 22nd to the 23rd. Now, it is said that Kate did not sleep a single wink on the overnight trip from Pennsylvania to Washington, D.C., I bet she didn't. Leading to Pinkerton choosing We Never Sleep for his agency slogan and a wide open eye for its logo. (laughs) The disguises provided by Kate that night enabled Lincoln to make it through Baltimore without recognition and take his seat in the White House. She was the biggest key in the foiled Baltimore assassination plot. Not only did she help uncover the details, but she also carried out most of the arrangements to smuggle Lincoln into D.C. She couriered secret information, set up meetings, as well as securing the necessary four bursts on the train leaving Philadelphia under the pretext that these bursts were for her sick brother and family members. And her badassery did not even stop there. The protection at Warren and Pinkerton provided Lincoln during this time became the foundation of a long relationship between Pinkerton, uh, the Pinkerton Agency and the 16th president. After her role in saving Lincoln, Kate continued to travel with Alan Pinkerton as his female superintendent of detectives and also disguised as his wife. 
Now, there are rumors that she was his mistress. I'm not even going into that because it doesn't fucking matter. It's I mean, not. whatever. Exactly. Um, on Good April for her. Tw- exactly. And them, if they were getting it. <laughs> exactly. Like, it, it has no bearing on, on any of this. So, uh, now on April 12th, 1861, the Confederate States of America's cannons in Charleston began firing on Fort Sumter. And those cannon shells marked the beginning of what we know as the American Civil War. Pinkerton immediately wrote to Lincoln offering his services, not realizing that General George B. McClellan was already planning to ask Pinkerton to lead what would become the Union's first centralized military intelligence agency. Cool. By the end of July 1861, Pinkerton and his top detectives, including Kate uh, Timothy Webster and later George Bangs went west to set up the headquarters of the Union Intelligence Service in Cincinnati, Ohio, and began conducting undercover espionage operations, marking the very beginnings of what would eventually evolve into the CIA. So technically, she's also the first member of the female member of the CIA, if you look at it that way. Well, <laughs> a founding member. Yep. Working closely both with Pinkerton and Timothy, Kate was able to gather intel by charming her way into Southern social circles and events. And though she continued to set the standard for her field, at this point she was no longer the only female spy conducting espionage during the Civil War. She at this point had successfully paved the way for other women and they all worked underneath her. After the Civil War, Kate uh, worked on various high-profile cases. One of these involved the murder of a bank teller, George Gordon. The murderer got away with $130,000, which is roughly $4,284,784.34 today. Uh, Through his investigation, Pinkerton felt certain that his prime suspect, Alexander P. Drysdale, had in fact killed Gordon. However, at this point, he didn't have enough hard evidence to convict Drysdale. Too much was pretty much just based on speculation. Mm. Therefore, he set a trap for Drysdale so that he would reveal a confession. Kate was sent undercover as a Mrs. Potter and became close friends with Mr. Drysdale's wife. Through Mm. this plot, they were able to uncover exactly where Drysdale had hidden the stolen money. Wow. Another case brought to Pinkerton by Captain J.N. Sumner, a seaman, convinced his sister, Mrs. Annie Thayer, and her lover, Mr. Patmore, were trying to poison him, led to an impressive undercover performance by Kate as a fortune teller named Lucille. Well, <laughs> not only did I did not see that one coming. Right? Oh, and there's a book. There's a book. Oh. <gasps> Alan Pinkerton wrote a book, and it's in uh, part of the Gutenberg Project, and it is also linked in the show notes, because why not? Uh, So not only did she uncover Annie's attempts to kill her brother, but that her lover had already successfully taken out his former wife. Whoops. In the meantime, she also continually coordinated Pinkerton's other female detectives in the agency. Pinkerton rented a space for Kate to work as part of her guise. Alan Pinkerton named Kate one of his five best detectives that he's ever had. Her employment by Pinkerton was a significant monument in women's history. Women were not allowed to be part of the police force until 1891 and could not be officers until 1910. Boo. Right? Pinkerton constantly showed a deep trust in the work that Kate performed 
and acknowledged so in his memoirs. Pinkerton would say to his female prospective agents, in my service, you will serve our, your country better than on the field. I have several female operatives. If you agree to come aboard, you will go in training with the head of my female detectives, Kate Warren. She has never let me down. Hmm. Kate's life, sadly, was tragically struck down at the young age of 35 mm. when she contracted pneumonia and died on January 28th, 1861. Now, that's according to some research, hmm. but I should know that the Pinkerton site has her having passed on New Year's Day of 1868, and I kind of believe Pinkerton um, based on... Yeah, they seem to be a primary source. Right, and based on their sheer fucking love of this woman, and rightfully so. When you look at all that Kate accomplished in the just 12 years, yeah, you can't help but wonder what more she, she could have done and what new trails she would have blazed. She was, I, I, I'm not going to lie, and, you know, maybe it's just because I'm a little emotional, but I cried at this. She was buried Uh-oh. in the Pinkerton family plot. At Graceland Cemetery in Chicago, Illinois. Her gravestone is marked under the misspelled surname of Warren, W-A-R-N, and states that she died of congestion of the lungs. Pinkerton wanted her burial plot to be completely undisturbed, so he took care of the issue in his will. Warren's burial plot can never be sold. There's so much more about Kate, um... And I highly recommend that you guys, you know, dive a bit deeper in the resources that I've linked. Um, It also seems as though we may be able to watch more about her soon. Mm -hmm. Rumor has it that Emily Blunt has been cast as Kate alongside The Rock in an action-adventure film based on Kate's (laughs) life. (laughs) Which I will... The Rock. You know what? I will admit I will watch anything with him because I find him incredibly endearing emily blunt is wonderful and i can i can totally handle her pink kate i cannot believe that we don't have statues and more oh the family plot thing just it gave me chills it got me right in the heart because because that says it all right like that that says more than any like you know you can finesse history right but that Right. That sort of obvious affection mm-hmm. and trust and loyalty, like you don't you don't fake that. No. You don't you don't, you don't fake burying someone in your family plot. Exactly. Like that's just not a not a thing. And I also and, did not yeah. realize how much Alan Pinkerton wrote. But he wrote a lot and a lot of it's because of the age. It's in the Gutenberg project, which I freaking love the Gutenberg project. So I've linked stuff um in the show notes for people but it I think the fact that she is buried in the family plot makes me even more irritated at anybody that mentions her being his mistress because that's not it wasn't that I mean even if it was even if they were fucking around for all intents and purposes like it was so much more than that I mean she was yeah like they were a partnership Right. Whether or not they were ever romantically linked. Right. And she gave she gave everything to the company. She gave everything to the country. She gave 
so much. I mean, and you can tell she loved doing what she did. Um, yep. And <laughs> I found one photo of her. And it was so weird because while doing research, it occurs to me that, like, even though, you know, we're a podcast, we do, we do extensive research based yep. on who we are and just what we do. But, like, there was one, like, history blogger that had her being born somewhere and all these family members and there's no known photos and I'm like I have photos right here like I have like it's so contradictory it's so weird um ah the internet right but I also included a link to her burial plot because it just it got me in the feels and I I love and appreciate the fact that Ellen Pinkerton had the balls to hire a woman in that position and yeah. treat her with respect and name her as one of his best, you know, and and give her the authority that she earned and deserved. And yeah, I find that to be impressive. I'm mad that I have to find it impressive. But yes. Like, I mean, especially well for the time period. Done. Like, yeah, it just the whole thing is um, it's yeah. interesting. Well, I mean, it kind of reminds me of Francis Glessner Lee. Right. And right. like how respected she was, mm-hmm. um, which is our first episode yes. ever. If uh, anyone wants to go listen to that. But wow. So, yeah. What a badass. Right. That's our girl, Kate. Well. I uh, am going to follow in your footsteps with another badass lady. Yay! Let me tell you about Pearl Titel, a forensic document examiner. Oh, yes. Yes. A little more than a week ago, a story and obituary by Richard Sandemir popped up in the New York Times. And it announced the death of 104-year-old Pearl Titel, who was a groundbreaking forensic document examiner, who was an expert in handwriting, typewriters, paper, and ink, and the identification of forged documents. And so when this popped up, I, I saw all of the things that she did, and I was like, wait, why the hell don't I know who this is? Like, why don't I know that name? And that sort of sent me down the rabbit hole that ended up being the research for this podcast. Um, 104, man. I know. Amazing. Right? Yeah, she outlived her own kid. Ooh. Which is rough. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So just as a sort of amusing side note, while I was going down this rabbit hole, I ended up watching an entire 1960s documentary on Hugh Hefner <laughs> to find out how to pronounce, uh, how to pronounce, how to pronounce Titel, um, only to find out that contrary to what Google had led me to believe, his name was not actually mentioned in that documentary <laughs> at all. <laughs> 
And so I watched an entire 1960s documentary on Hugh Hefner that was, like, obviously a flattery piece. And it was, yeah, like, but it was also really delightful because it was 35-year-old Hugh Hefner um, being sort of amazed by what was going on. And there was so much good fashion and so much good makeup. Um, so I'm not sorry, but that it did not help. That happens um, sometimes. I read an entire young adult book on what was supposed to be stories of Kate, and it was not as good as I thought. <laughs> At least it kind of involved her, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Anyway. So I know more about Hef than I ever needed to know. Nice, nice. He was actually better looking than I (laughs) thought he was. I mean, I know he looks like old. Yeah. But young him was actually pretty dashing. You never know where the rabbit hole will take you. No, there you have it. He might might end up with some bunnies. Yes. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. The opening shot of that was like this blurry puff. (laughs) And then... Eventually, it zoomed out, and it was the Puff Bunny butt on a Playboy Bunny. Uh, And I did not see that coming, and it got me. (laughs) And I was like, oh, oh no. Anyway, back to Pearl. Back to Pearl. Yeah. Pearl was the daughter of Jewish immigrants and was born Pearl Lily Kessler in Manhattan on August 29th, 1917. And she grew up in Brooklyn. In 1938, while working in the Flatiron Building in the accounting accounting department of a company there, Pearl met Martin Titel, who was trying to land a rental and repair contract for typewriters with the company. And while he was there, he apparently asked her out to dinner. She didn't go out to dinner <laughs> that night for reasons i don't know roll shot him down yeah but the very next day martin returned and reportedly said and this is quoted in her obituary so i oh okay. think it must be true um he reportedly said quote come to work for me and i'll marry you right that's problematic yeah, so I guess that questionable line worked oh, because girl. she did go work for him. And weirdly, their Fulton Street office is not terribly far away from Gizmo, my sort of quirky go-to old-school sewing machine repair person that I bring all of my old antique sewing machines to Mm -hmm. to get serviced um and they have sort of the same vibe like photos of the typewriter shop are really really similar to how the uh the sewing machine repair shop looks and so i i don't know just something about it struck me as as similar um i have sort of the same yesteryear charm vibe going on but I guess Martin was not a creep. Okay. It seems that they were very happy. Oh, that's and 
it was 1938. Yeah. And so, I don't, I don't know. Maybe there was more conversation than that. Maybe it was a joke. And then it was remembered because it was so clearly, yeah. because like, it turned out. I don't know. But, yeah. So, whatever the case, it worked. And she went to work for him. And then she would go on to marry him in 1943 after he was drafted into the army for World War II. Oof. Yeah. And at that point, she was 26. So she was 21 when they met. Okay. And, yeah. So that's, like, 26? 26 was how old I was when I got married. And that is young in New York City now. But that would have been startlingly old for the time to be together and not putting a ring on that is back then is shocking i mean he maybe he was actually courting her that's a lot of courting uh, maybe she was like nope and then (laughs) finally was like "Eh, hey you're going off to war yeah (laughs) fine um i mean Waited till 1943 to put a ring on it, so I guess it was in the middle of the war? Maybe he was home on leave. I don't know. Anyway, here's where things start to get interesting. The Titel's typewriter repair and rental business in Lower Manhattan made them both intimately aware of the quirks and individual variations of each typewriter they serviced. And I wrote sewing machine in my notes, not typewriter. (laughs) Whoops. Makes sense, Um, though. Yeah. In the early 1950s, that knowledge would lead the business on an entirely new path. So, in 1950, Alger Hiss, who was a former official in the U.S. State Department, who also helped create the United Nations following World War II, was convicted of perjury for lying to a grand jury about providing secret information to a communist agent in the 1930s. Hi, McCarthyism! (laughs) Sup! Um, And in 1948, one of Hiss's named co-conspirators provided documents to the House Committee on Un-American Activities that showed his involvement in the espionage. And I thought that the House Committee didn't exist until 1950, so maybe they were just delivering that to the House. I'm not really sure. Um, But either way, that was the the area it was hanging out in, the oh shit communist area. <laughs> and a fun fact, these documents that were handed over were called the pumpkin papers because the microfilm that contained them had been hidden inside a pumpkin on a farm in Maryland. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. They were the, the farm belonged to the person who turned over the documents. So it's not quite as weird 
But still, it is the pumpkin papers. It's not some place I would hide film. That's a damp environment. I don't. And they rot fairly quickly once you carve into them. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was in like a root cellar or something. Yeah. I have no idea. Anyway, I I just know it was in a pumpkin. So, at some point, that microfilm was in a pumpkin (laughs) somewhere in Maryland, hanging out for some amount of time. Unclear. Hiss insisted that he was not guilty of espionage, but instead a victim of uh, what he called forgery by typewriter. Mm. And he hired Mr. Titel to prove it. And Mr. Titel would then spend two years building a typewriter with a print pattern that exactly matched Mr. Hiss's typewriter's print pattern. And for anyone who maybe isn't old enough to have used a typewriter, um, I learned to type on a typewriter, but I suspect that I am near the tail end of yeah. of that. Um, each typewriter has, like, sometimes not the whole letter shows up. Sometimes there are, like, imperfections in the letter, so they look funny. Sometimes the typewriter isn't aligned properly, and so some letters hit. Um, higher or lower than other letters so there's you can generally speaking connect a document to the typewriter that wrote it if you have enough typewritten examples from that typewriter and that's just generally speaking true Mm -hmm. now the typewriter project itself was successful, but Mr. Hiss's appeal, alas, was not. But as part of the efforts in that case, Mrs. Titel, our our girl Pearl, Mm -hmm. researched the elements and qualities of the typefaces that they needed to copy, and this sort of started everything rolling. Even though the appeal for Mr. Hiss was not successful. The Titels clearly had an eye for detail when it came to authenticating and or faking documents. So Pearl took another step forward and started taking courses studying paper, photography ink, type styles, and handwriting. And She's one of us. (laughs) She's one of us. Um, Yeah. And like type styles are also a thing in typewriters or antique um, label makers, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, Sometimes you can even change out one wheel of letters or numbers for a different style like there's a lot that a lot going on and so that would have been a very interesting area of study to just discover that you are really good at and need to know all of the things about so 
the um, next logical step, of course, was the Titel Questioned Document Laboratory, which was opened in 1951. And it became the focus of Pearl's work going forward. And eventually the Titel's son, Peter, would join them as well. But I love the Titel Questioned Document Laboratory. <laughs> I would want to work there. <laughs> yeah, me too. I totally want to work there. In the 1960s, Pearl would also go on to earn both a bachelor's and master's of science from New York University. Get it, Pearl? Right? And, I mean, that was the 1960s, and she was like a married mom with kids. So let me give you a quick overview of some of Pearl's work, because... A lot of it was, you know, the, the boring part of is this fake or is this not fake. But some of it was really weird. And though much of her professional life was spent behind the scenes where she would examine documents like contracts and receipts and checks and wills, every once in a while she stepped into the spotlight. In 1963, she worked for Life magazine to investigate Eugenia Smith, a woman from Chicago who was claiming to be Grand Duchess Anastasia of Russia. Oh. Uh-huh. The uh, almost certainly Romanoff. already deceased yeah. at that time, daughter of Tsar Nicholas II. And I do believe that... Bone studies have confirmed that the that the entire family has now been accounted for. So I she was definitely right. dead because she and I believe the son were buried elsewhere. Mm -hmm. That's not correct. It does, doesn't it? Let's mm -hmm. go with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, turns out that when compared to known examples of Anastasia's writing, Mrs. Smith's letter E's didn't quite make the cut. And Pearl was delightfully direct in her assessment. Quote, in gross appearance alone, the two sets of documents are markedly different. When examined letter by letter, the differences are even sharper. The Shade Pearl. <laughs> I love yep. it. <laughs> and in 1964, she was written about in Popular Science. Nice. By name. And here's a, another quote from Popular Science that I think really captures what was going on at the time and what she was doing. Quote, in another instance, ink color exposed a deception. The case involved an architectural firm that bitterly dissolved its partnership with a construction company. Each business claimed that the patent rights to a promising new building material, or each, sorry, each business claimed the patent rights to a promising new building material. The architectural firm had submitted its patent drawings 
on April 1st, 1961, several days before the construction company did. At court, executives confidently unrolled the blueprints as proof and howled. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, popular science. The date now read April 21st, several days after the date on the construction company's drawings. The firm's officials rushed to Mrs. Pearl Titel, New York document detective. Nice! Calmly, Mrs. Titel slid the drawing under a microscope, noted the color of the one. Next, she squinted at the two. The colors were different. The numbers had not been made with the same ink. Hmm. Then she put the two under one lens of a comparison microscope, slid the date on the construction company's drawings under the other lens. Through the eyepiece, the two numbers lay side by side. A glance showed that their color was identical. The ink of the two was the same used to date the construction company's drawings. So, busted! Somebody added that too. Pearl's a badass. Yeah. She also helped the Board of Elections in the Bronx and Manhattan confirm absentee ballot envelopes to the signatures of on-file voters. And I'm not sure, uh, as someone who votes in New York City, mm-hmm. generally speaking, they don't care that my signature is wildly different than the one that the DMV has on file for me because I carefully wrote the DMV one. But I guess that she probably would be able to tell that they were written by the same person because the way that I write isn't different. It's just sloppier. Yeah. So you'd still have the same nuances to yeah. the letters. So I guess maybe I don't know that it was necessary for her to do that. Right. That seems beneath her. <laughs> But I also uh, couldn't find exactly when in her career she did it. So mm. she may have just been volunteering. She may have been be training a, an then. Election worker. Just to... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe she was practicing. Yeah, getting some hours underneath her. To... Mm-hmm. Yep. She also foiled a lot of poison pen plots by noticing repetitions of phrases, colloquialisms, and other like verbal ticks across documents and when she sometimes when she would suspect someone of being a poison pen so if uh, listeners are unfamiliar a poison pen is basically someone writing slanderous things about someone else with the specific intent to cause harm um so either like i think blackmail can be under that umbrella um there was an instance in which a doctor was accused of running an abortion mill before roe v wade had happened and he happened to be a parish doctor Mm. And so that would have been incredibly scandalous. So the OG trolls? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 
I mean, that one ended up being the doctor's sister. Oof. Yeah. Uh, but she would sometimes, when she had a suspect in mind, send her husband in to pose as a typewriter repairman <laughs> and get samples from the offending typewriter so she could match them, which I think is very sneaky and hilarious that and is. also way to deploy your spouse. <laughs> right? Oh, and bless him for doing it. You know what I mean? Well, it seems... I mean, he was a typewriter repairman. Right. <laughs> but it's, it seemed to me from... I. I read the obituaries of all three of the people involved, so her, her husband, and their son, mm-hmm. and it really does seem like they all work together. Like That's it awesome. was just a a group of people who were excited about things. Yeah, which I really like. Um, I really like that he supported her going through that amount of education at that time. Me too. Because that's not, it was not common for women to get bachelors, let alone a master's. And especially she was older at the time too. So, you know. Yeah, it was the 1960s. So, I mean, I guess she would have probably had a grown son or Mm -hmm. nearly grown at least. But that's really cool. And I couldn't actually find out what the um, master's was in. But I'm, it wasn't anywhere in any of the documentation that hmm. I found on her. And so I'm wondering if there wasn't a, if you earned the degree Master of Science at the time from New York University and it wasn't further specified. Yeah, uh, that's possible. I don't know. Or it's also, it, it could just be that, like, I don't think she wanted it for the title of it. But just, again, like you and me, just wanted knowledge. Like, wanted yeah. to learn the things. But, I mean, so. she definitely got a master's degree. Right, right, right. But I'm saying and, that she probably yeah. wasn't, like, you know, walking around being like, I have a master's and blah, no. blah, blah. Well, I have a very ridiculous um, credential from NYU that is extremely specific. <laughs> so, it's sort of funny to me. Um, it's in digital book marketing. Okay. So, <laughs> and, yeah, that's a... Just a graduate certificate. And it was that specific. So I, I don't know. Um, it was things the 60s. Were different things were wild. At the time. <laughs> things were wild, I know, because I watched that half documentary. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Right. In 1982, she was even an expert witness for the tax evasion case leveled against Reverend Sun... Myung Moon of the Unification Church. Wow. So uh, the Moonies of, um, or the the leader of Moonies fame and the mass weddings and such. Yeah. So that guy. Uh, and she used the evolution of his handwriting over time, along with paper mill records and watermarks, to prove that checks he claimed to have signed in 1973 were actually signed in 1974. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. And it was the S's that started giving him away because they went from being printed to being written. So, in person. Uh-huh. Um, 
during that time. And so she could pinpoint the time period depending on where in that evolution the um so amazing and isn't that cool (laughs) yeah so and i think there were xerox watermarks and very specific paper mill batches like it it was a whole thing and she was just that smart that's amazing yeah and she worked with other people, um, especially at the government level, for doing cases involving happenings within the government where they would do chemical analysis mm-hmm. and I think x-rays, like a bunch of different things that you wouldn't necessarily think of when you're like, oh yeah, you know, a lady who was a typist who then right. went to work for a typewriter repair company like okay so she was just awesome right and here is a look into the lab which i was really excited about because i wanted to know there are some pictures but i wanted to see a description Mm -hmm. and so this quote from the la times archives by rick hampson from 1990 says Tytel and company his wife Pearl and their 45 year old son Peter are ready for virtually any topographic challenge or typographic not topographic very different (laughs) things I mean maybe topographic also I guess if you were trying to decide whether the topography was real (laughs) and correct on something I don't know anyway they have the world's largest collection of type about two million pieces, representing 145 different languages and dialects, including uh, Syriac, a virtually, no, I don't know how to say that word. It's the, um, the time of Christ. It's what the Bible was originally written in. It's not Aramaic. So I guess, no, Syriac. Let's go with Syriac. Um, right. A virtually dead language that dates from the time of Christ and Old English. Old English type is a real pain in the ass. Oh, I bet. I worked for the Early English Books Project, um, and I think I've talked about it before, doing uh, 16th and 17th century manuscript digitization. Mm, yep. And, oh boy, there is, it's a good thing I took German. <laughs> yeah. There's an awful lot of questionable characters um, and F's and S's that look like each other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is weird. It is. Anyway, back to the quote. They have about 400 assembled typewriters in various languages, including several in Hindi and Siamese, ready mm-hmm. for sale. They have a type and typewriter reference library that helps them to determine, sometimes for the information of the police, if a document could have been typed on a particular typewriter on a particular date. And, or, but their greatest asset is their experience. They can tell a Selectric 2 from a Selectric 3 by the length of the underscore line. They know that if the dot 
on an I is slightly to the left. It was typed on an L.C. Smith manual, which I have, just for funsies. My uh, grandparents got it for my dad when he went to the police academy, and now I have it. And I learned to type on it. Um, (laughs) They know that if the dot on an I is slightly to the left, it was typed on an L.C. Smith manual that an 8 with a small projection at the top came from an Underwood Model 8. So I just thought that was a really interesting look at at that time. Because you think of the 90s and you think that you're moving away from that stuff. But especially like government level offices and big organizations and the police like they for sure did not get rid of their typewriters right and no that stuff takes, most places around for a long time yeah and when i moved to new york in 2005 when i started in book publishing there were typewriters at the desks next to the computers mm. um like the more fancy word processory mm-hmm. typewriters. So they weren't manual anymore, but they were still typewriters. There's and, just yeah. something about uh, clacking on a typewriter. Just that tactile oh, yes. and the sound and the. Yeah. Yeah, my typewriter makes the most satisfying snick <laughs> and then oh, when you have to it. do the carriage return on it <laughs> yes. yep mine definitely has bells it's a whole thing um, and it has a power space i don't know how it works because that thing is from the late 70s and or maybe earlier than that i don't know um and it definitely, I don't think it has a battery. I don't know. Anyway, it moves fast. Uh, Eldest School went on a field trip to the American Writers Museum in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And they got to type on a whole bunch of different typewriters. And she was cool. in awe. <laughs> oh, typewriters? Fun. Yes. And in a quote from her daughter in her New York Times obituary, uh, Pamela daughter said that Mrs. Titel, quote, worked on every case that my father did, Pamela Titel said. Clients often hired my father, but she did all the work. She took some of their high-profile cases because my father wasn't good on the stand. Hmm. And then in another New York Times quote, she was an exceptional witness. Martin Flumenbaum, a prosecutor, in a case, I don't remember what the case was, said in a phone interview, she dominated the courtroom. I remember the jury being enthralled by her testimony. For a little visual, Mm -hmm. this woman is, well, she looks like a white-haired old lady with a braid wrapped around her head. Nice. So, like, waist-length long hair probably mm-hmm. and there's like a bun and braids combination going on in all the photos and it's very cute and so she 
looks like a delight and also I would be fascinated by that woman telling me all about forensic typography like yes please Pearl continued her examinations and still until she retired in 2001 which I believe is 70 years of doing that oh she's adorable I just pulled yeah. up a photo like but but even then she still couldn't step away entirely and she continued to chime in on the cases that were being worked by her son. And, quote, every other Sunday, he'd show her the cases and she'd give her opinion, Pamela Titel said. He'd say, boy, some of the things she said I didn't think of. Which I think is a delightful a delightful amount of esteem for a son yes. to hold their mother in. Like, her expertise was clearly respected in her family, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Especially during a time where, you know, misogyny was really common. Right. Like, he could have been a dick and been like, you know. Yeah. And it doesn't seem that any of them were. It seems like they just were forensic geeks together. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Before his death in August 2020, Peter, the son, would continue the family tradition of investigation, weighing in on documents involving George W. Bush, Mark Zuckerberg, and Marilyn Monroe, weirdly enough. (laughs) Yep. So it, it ran in the family. Now, after hearing... All of that, you may be wondering, why don't we all know Pearl's name? Right. Why isn't, like, there aren't books about her. What? Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, I need to uh, jump in an email to my agent, like yesterday. But from the research, I honestly can't tell if she preferred to be in the background or if she was overlooked in reporting because she was a woman. I mean, she was name-checked specifically as a detective of documents Mm -hmm. by Popular Science in 1964, and this was when Popular Science had a lot of weight behind it. Yeah. Like, this isn't Popular Science of now. This is... It's like Newsweek was when I was much younger, when that was a serious news magazine. And so that was going on in 1964, and that was during a time when almost all experts would have been men. And her expertise was attributed 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 to her directly, and not by way of her husband. Her was, husband was not mentioned in that quote. I think he was mentioned in the article because mm-hmm. I think it was about both of them and their and their business. But nobody felt the need to throw her husband's name in. And she wasn't just referred to as Mrs. Titel. She was also given the respect of her name. And so, 
interesting. It is. Yeah. And her name pops up in lots of court records and government investigations. And so she was very clearly a trusted expert of the time. But that said, her son and husband do show up way more frequently than she does in any given search. And matter of fact, I was really frustrated before I figured out that they were her son and her husband, that all of this stuff about Martin and Peter and all of these typewriters kept coming up. And that was not what I was looking for. And I, I was looking for Pearl. Right. And once I figured out that they were all a unit, um, that made more sense. But she's hard to find. Even in, even if you really know your way around like very specific Google search methods it she's just not easy to find that makes me um, sad yeah and i mean maybe it's her husband's obviously outgoing personality and background in sales and servicing that made him more likely to talk mm. to the press and maybe she didn't want to but clearly she was capable. Like, she testified in front of I Congress, she, she I think. She commanded a courtroom. Yeah, okay. and... Um, I wonder if it's... And her like, word was the definitive. Like, they trusted her above the FBI in several oh, cases. Wow. In my um, head, I'm picturing yeah. her ability to command the courtroom in the same way that like when you and I get excited about something that we yeah. really are interested in or care about like it's that passion that comes out I think she was just yeah the hyper focus right I think that overall it seems like she just really enjoyed doing that and and pushing her knowledge and talent and helping people and i think that she because that she enjoyed doing that so much the accolade wasn't really the goal was for her the knowledge that like i think she was doing it more for herself and her enjoyment of it than yeah i don't know than i mean accreditation clearly mm -hmm. she pursued education mm -hmm. she really took this seriously and she was taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And she was taken very seriously. So it's interesting like, that there's so much respect and she was so mm -hmm. accomplished. But, yeah, but then no. Why, yeah. why like, I read multiple accounts of her overriding the FBI <laughs> on an opinion on when something was written. Wow. And being correct. That's amazing. So, yeah, and I mean, it doesn't seem like it was a gotcha thing either. It seemed like, okay, we need to call in the Calvary here. Mm -hmm. And she was the Calvary. So it's, it is very fascinating. It seems to me that she was the expert behind 
the company. Mm-hmm. And it seems, well, both her son and her daughter say as much that she did the work and often her husband was the person who was hired because hmm, men and <laughs> honestly i i understand yeah. like at that time that would have been the way to yeah. get work but that said when it wasn't like what we would know is like uh, Fortune 500 companies now mm-hmm. were the people who were there and utilities and stuff like that mm-hmm. would come to them. And so I see that why those people would think they would have to hire a man. Yeah. But the government sure didn't. And the cops also did not. <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, maybe she wanted to just quietly do her work and be left alone which i can completely understand yeah. um or maybe it was the patriarchy i, I don't patriarchy. know yeah <laughs> but her new york times obituary i think sums the whole of this up pretty well and it begins pearl titel the matriarch of a family of question document examiners whose intricate knowledge of paper, ink, handwriting, and typewriters made her a prominent investigator of frauds, forgeries, tax evasion, and poison pen letters, died on September 26th at her home in the Riverdale neighborhood of the Bronx. She was 104. And, and when they home. say September 26th, they mean last month. Wow. And still living at home at 104. Now yeah. I'm, I'm sad that we didn't find out about her, like, a few months ago. So we can reach out and be like, hi. Yeah. Wow. I mean, she is she's quite something. And I linked to a bunch of different sources if you want to know a little bit more about her. She also comes up in newspaper archives. Um, that actually is a way more common thing for mm. her to come up in newspaper archives than in a lot of just normal Googling. But, yeah, she is largely not visible in the history of forensics, but she was so key to its right. development. So weird. Yeah. That so that is... You gotta do a book? Ugh, I'm already doing a book. I I'm already doing several. I <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, not that I'm turning down books coming my way because, you know, authors are yeah. deeply superstitious about things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, bring on the books. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that is... Um, Pearl Titel. Wow, that's amazing. That's such a good story. Isn't she cool? Oh, yes. I want to hang out with her. Me too. Oh, boy. You know what that brings us to? I'm not on this page. (laughs) Okay. Okay, I am now. That wonderfulness now brings us to the weekly 
Worst, Worst way, way to, to die. To die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we did not. We are never going to be in tune with that. <laughs> Fine. We could pick we a could. tune, but really, why? Right. Yep. Yep. So what? What you got? What's your? What's your? What's your worst way to die this week? Poison pen. Yeah, that would suck. Yeah. In any incarnation that one might come up with. I was gonna say poison pen broadly, actual poison pen. Yeah. Whatever. Minus. I, I guess I really wouldn't want to go down by way of terrible, terrible, terrible slander. <laughs> yeah, that would slander to death. <laughs> that is that is a terrifying thought as a published author. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. Anyway, so yeah, poison pen. What's yours? Uh, mine is Angry Mob. Oh, yeah. That would yep. not, not be fun. No, I actually am very afraid of mob mentality broadly because yeah. I am very short and very yeah. small and oh. people see over me. You would be trampled. Mm-hmm. I'd throw you on my back. <laughs> <laughs> That happened, um, that's happened many times at uh, Rammstein concerts, mm. <laughs> that whichever gigantic German dude I was with was just like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Um, but yeah, I, I just listened to a podcast about a terrible i want to say manchester oh, trampling yep uh my favorite murder was it yep 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 karen covered it yeah i think two podcasts covered it oh um, really recently well i think it was when i think it was an anniversary wasn't it uh probably anyway um yeah but that yeah. was bad yeah karen did cover it and who like that right there, that gives me panic attacks. Yeah. Like, I could have one thinking about it. Mm-mm-mm, no. Nope. Do not want, do not want mobs. Mm-mm. Then we're going to skip on past that. Yeah. And go right into, on that note, do you want to be spooky internet friends? Obviously you do. Yes. I mean, come on, let's not even joke. It, seriously. How could you not? Yeah. <laughs> We are Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, TikTok, which we will eventually do something with. Or you yeah. can find us just at BonesandBobbins.com. All I'm saying is turn your teens loose on the TikTok. I, I need to. I need to just be like, hi. They can they can do that. I, uh-oh, we might die by slander. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, it's it's really funny because the uh, the uh, one of the audios going around on TikTok is um, oh, and of course now I can't think of it, but it's basically a song blurb where like teenagers teenagers scare the shit out of me. Teenagers scare the living living shit out, shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, and they should. 
They should. So uh, it would be appropriate. It would be an appropriate time to unleash them. Yeah. I think my best friend has maybe a t-shirt that just says arm teenage girls. Yes. Seriously. <laughs> Honest. Yeah. Especially yeah. this generation, man. They're they're pretty badass. Uh, yeah. They, they don't uh, they don't take much shit. I appreciate that about them. Uh, my youngest will call somebody's mom on them. Like, she has reported guys that have been appropriate inappropriate with her. She has hunted their moms down on Facebook, Snapchat. She's been like, hi, let me introduce you to what your son is really like. And I'm like, yeah, get it, girl. I mean. Love her. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and on that note. <laughs> Don't forget to rate and review this podcast. Yes. And also, teenage girls, perhaps. Let's be excited about teenage girls. Yes. Um, it, in a not creepy way. Yeah. Maybe in a supportive, they are badass kind yes. of way. Yes. Um, hype them up. Yeah. It pleases the internet gremlins, and that is how we show up in recommendation so that other morbid souls can find us. Bring forth the morbid souls. <laughs> yes, we need them all. All of them. No! <laughs> and on that note, let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. <laughs> or pens. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content. <laughs>